is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 209 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Lewis Jorstad all about how to write a series. But first to last week's question, which was, where do you write? Heather Button said, where do I write? I write at my desk or when traveling, I uh, wherever I find a desk-like place. But I always edit in a different location to give my brain a new reference point. So from my sofa, roof deck, cafe, etc. This week's question is, what part of story do you find the hardest to write and why? And the reason I'm asking this is because I have just discovered, and this is probably not going to be a surprise to any long-term listeners, the thing I struggle with most is, like, history. (laughs) So the backstory, the context, the, um, yeah, so I think I'm going to go on a learner binge and try and study up a bit about context and um, uh, backstory and all of that good stuff just so that I can uh, bolster what I want in the next series. Um, So yeah, like that was kind of a little discovery for me recently and um, it makes total sense. (laughs) because context is at 33 out of 34 for me. So I just don't think about the past. I just always look forward. And um, (laughs) for all of the historical fiction writers who know that I'm not a huge fan of historical fiction, you're probably all cackling to yourselves now, um, going, we knew that, we could have predicted that. Yes, yes, I think if I thought about it, I probably could have predicted it too. Nevertheless, I am determined I will not be defeated by history. So, yeah, if you guys, actually, this is a good point. If you guys listening have a craft book recommendation that focuses on backstory, context, um, origin stories, anything like that, I would be super grateful uh, for the recommendations. Please just DM me on Instagram at Sasha Black Author, but I am now hunting. <laughs> embracing context, embracing it. Uh, Yeah, so that I can make the next series even better. The book recommendation of the week this week is Diary of a CEO by Stephen Bartlett. So I am reading this uh, with my wife. We both listen to the Diary of a CEO podcast. It's fantastic. I love his way of interviewing. I love his attention to detail. And so I want, I've read his other book, Happy Sexy Millionaire and uh, Uh, Yeah, so I wanted to read Diary of a CEO. He is fascinating. He's only just turned 30. He's worth like half a billion pounds or whatever. Um, And he's just super interesting and super driven. So highly recommending that book. One of the reasons I'm recommending it is because he has a section on uncertainty. And I think uncertainty is one of those things in the industry that we all struggle with. We all struggle to keep going in the face of uncertainty. And that is one of the most important parts uh, of our careers is, you know, facing and embracing that uncertainty. And so, yeah, I really liked the section in his book on uncertainty. So that's my book recommendation of the week. Okay, so... In personal news and updates then, I had a bit of a wobble over the weekend because I had some feedback from my editor that suggested uh, I should go into a slightly different angle than I was comfortable with. Uh, So I kind of, you know, reasoned it out, talked it out, got the edits done and the edits are now with the um, editor for like the copy edits proofing bit. And I'm super excited. So I will be releasing the book. Uh, In fact, I'm not going to say the date because I'm going to say it next week because today after I finish the podcast I'm going to be setting confirming (laughs) the uh, launch dates and all of the rest of it so what else have I been up to I'm giving myself now about a week to get all of the launch stuff ready. I am in the process of drafting my keynote for Vegas. I tell you, (laughs) I think this might have been the hardest thing I've ever done. The levels of imposter syndrome that I am facing are excruciating. I am really struggling, really struggling with... I can't even, I am struggling to feel like 
I have enough value to give. And it's, it's just really hard psychologically to... Obviously, like, I love the stage. I love performing on the stage. I love speaking. I know I'm not afraid of speaking. What I'm afraid of is not delivering enough value in the content um, and feeling like, you know, a lot of keynotes... I can't... If it was craft, I would just go on stage and teach, right? There'd be no issues there because I do that all the time. Keynotes are not classes <laughs> they are stories they are journeys and it's really tricky for me to feel like I can provide enough value when as a number one competition I have a certain goal and I haven't reached that goal yet and therefore like <laughs> oh this is so hard to talk about therefore I'm literally like twisting my hands up. I I wish you could see me because I, I, I'm really struggling to even like admit and talk about this stuff. But I guess there's shame involved in the fact that I haven't hit that that goal yet. And so it makes it very difficult for me to value everything that I've done so far because I haven't hit that big goal and that's ridiculous because obviously there's a lot of value in the in in the journey the training that the the path upwards um but yeah look I'm just trying to be honest I'm just trying to be honest I get that it's not the right mindset <laughs> you know like I know this I've had my strengths coach like tell me a new asshole over this multiple times I know this is not a sane way of looking at this um, but you can't help your own psychological bullshit, right? <laughs> so I'm just sharing mine with you. So yeah, like, I am so excited to deliver, hopefully, what will be a very inspiring keynote. I'm, I'm really trying hard to make it super inspiring, but like, I'm also really struggling. <laughs> so hard so yeah I, this is kind of the two main things that I'm doing this week are getting all the launch things ready drafting Vegas stuff after that I will be working on um brainstorming and outlining the new series and the course so I I think I'm switching I I have sort of got a set of um class slide decks ready to film and I actually think I'm going to film those second and I'm going to bring a different course in in its place but I just want to finish outlining the course before I talk about that but I'm so fucking excited because it's the thing I'm most passionate about right now and we all know that when I'm super passionate about something like I will make sure it's the best thing that I can deliver for you so uh yeah I will talk about that more next time Okay, so the rebel of the week this week is Sarah M. Sarah says, um, I have a younger sister who had a teacher who used to bully her and me. When she was in year five, one day her and her classmate of hers had gone into the teacher's lounge looking for a teacher, but instead found a box, a chocolate box and the lounge empty. <laughs> They'd eaten the chocolate box between themselves and hid the empty box. When the teacher had asked them about it, they said they didn't know. I still cackle like a witch every time I hear it. <laughs> As did I. As did I, because I knew where the story was going. Oh my God, I love that. How naughty and cheeky. Like, those are the kind of rebellions I just bloody love because they're so... But also, like, think about how much joy that probably brought them. Yes, it was naughty. It was very cheeky. It probably shouldn't have done it, but who fucking cares? It was only a box of chocolates. Oh my goodness me, I loved that story so much. If you would like to be a Rebel of the Week, please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, something big, something small, or something in between. So just two notes on this we have discovered some uh, rebel stories in our junk mailbox so if you have sent in a story before and it hasn't been read on the show or you're pretty sure it's not been read on the show please do send it in again because um, our junk mailbox deletes itself every 30 days so we don't know if there were stories in the um, junk mailbox we read every story out every single story so if you sent one and it's not been read out uh, please do send it in uh, you can email your rebel story to Becca over on uh, this email address rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com 
So well, uh, thank you and welcome back to returning and new patrons, Janita Kay and Kim Barton. A huge thank you to all of my existing patrons. You guys really do help to keep the show running. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content like our writing and Q&A live sessions called Poison and Prose, the Slack community group where you can get access to me and like a hundred other authors all vying uh, to reach their goals, we do movie nights. We've got one of those coming up on the 11th of October. We, uh, the masterclasses, our next masterclass is on dark academia and how to write that. Uh, then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Okay, I loved this interview. I loved talking to Lewis. And I really hope that you enjoy it too. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Lewis Jawstead. Lewis is an author and developmental editor who helps indie authors and soon-to-be authors master their craft and find their readers over at The Novel Smithy. When he isn't busy coaching students or writing books of his own, you can find him playing old Game Boy games and baking far too many homemade bagels. Hello and welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I love this. So tell me about Game Boys because I am of the era of Game Boy. So um, although I, my, the feminist in me doesn't really understand why it wasn't called a Game Girl, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't really speak to the marketing team behind that. But um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm one of those annoying people who's like, modern games aren't as good anymore. I'm just going to go play Pokemon all day oh my um, God, because I'm blinded, I'm blinded by nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So which Pokemon did you, I had Pokemon red and blue. I, um, this says a lot about me as a person. Uh, my mission in college wasn't to graduate. It was to beat every Pokemon game ever released. So no. I've gotten all the way up to the most recent one. And the most recent one, hot take for anyone who's a Pokemon fan, was so bad I didn't play it. No. Oh, no. So, yeah. That's an incredible achievement, though. I, I did manage to also graduate college at the same time. I will say <laughs> I did fine. Um, but, you know, my priorities were a little different back then. Okay. And so, I mean, obvious ultimate question, what is your favorite bagel? Um, I like salted bagels, which sounds very strange, but when I make bagels, I, um, before I, I bake them, I brush them with melted butter and I put like really flaky smoked sea salt on top. And it's, it is a borderline religious experience. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> Highly recommended. What, what yeah. fillings do you have then? Um, I'm usually just a, a straight like cream cheese kind of person. Occasionally okay. I'll do a lox bagel um, if I'm feeling really fancy, but normally I, I like to keep it pretty simple. Okay, um, partially so we're just gonna... because I bake them and then immediately eat them. <laughs> we're going to be very good friends because bagels are one of my favorite foods and also one of my favorite things to experience in New York as well. Uh, and I can literally just eat like a whole, I have been known to eat bagels at breakfast, lunch and dinner. <laughs> Like I, I love a bagel. They don't necessarily love me, but I love them. <laughs> and I also am like completely basic and just love cream cheese in them. Um, but yes. Okay. I mean, this podcast isn't actually in fact about bagels. So I probably should ask you some relevant questions. <laughs> <laughs> so would you like to tell everyone a little bit more about you and your journey? Like, how did you get to where you are today? Well, speaking of, of college, <laughs> that's kind of how I ended up um, where I am today, uh, in the grand tradition of me trying to beat every Pokemon game, I also was doing basically anything but my schoolwork in college. What were you um, studying? I have uh, dual degrees in uh, Asian history and political science. Wow. Totally unrelated, I know. <laughs> and uh, And so amid all of that, I was spending most of my free time when I wasn't playing video games uh, like your stereotypical, you know, 21 year old, uh, college guy. Um, I was working with friends and critique partners and, um, you know, my fellow creative writing students for all of our elective classes, um, on kind of what became editing in the long term. Um, I had originally really wanted to do, uh, like, you know, English, English lit, as a degree, but I sort of talked myself out of it from the, well, I need to, I need to have a career. I need to make a living. Um, 
And so I went with something, I guess, more uh, stable, history and political science. I'm not really sure what I was thinking at the time. Obvious but, um, career path after that. Obvious, very exactly. obvious. <laughs> very clear career path. I should have probably gone into business or medicine, <laughs> but I didn't. Um, and, and astrophysics is a great choice too. <laughs> oh, Got absolutely. Degree, right? <laughs> <laughs> not to mention I failed calculus three times. <laughs> um, and so I, I graduated from college and kind of like you joked, I was looking ahead to like, well, what, you know, where will I work? And basically the only option was to get a, a PhD um, and become a professor also, or get into government. And I graduated at kind of dicey time for government in the US and for my mental health, the thought of going into that was pretty terrifying. And I also was ready to be done with school. I was like, I, I'm not in a place to get a PhD right now, uh, financially or mentally. And so I had the really interesting idea of just kind of throwing up my hands and saying, well, you know, fuck it. I'll, I'll pursue this, this editing thing that I've been wanting to do for such a long time, but have never made space for. Um, and I gave myself six months to get to a point where I felt like I could actually make it work as a job. Um, and I wasn't, I, I wasn't fully paying the rent at the end of those six months. Um, we, I was very lucky that I was living in a very cheap place off of Robin and beans at the time. Um, at the end of the six months, I wasn't, I wasn't quite in the green, but I was enough that I kept with it. And that's kind of where the novelsmithy came from. Uh, it's just sort of never stopped. And I keep thinking back like, man, I could be a, a low level, uh, political organizer at this point. I'm so glad I didn't go that path. <laughs> So unlike you, I did not learn the lesson. <laughs> and uh, despite thinking it was probably a terrible idea for my mental health, I did actually go into local government. <laughs> did you really? Oh, that's I'm amazing. I'm not even joking. <laughs> oh, no. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I, I've, I've kind of dealt with the trauma and grief now. Um, but uh, yeah, I did. And um Worse than that, I was a project manager in corporate. I mean, you don't get more corporate than project management and a worse place to do it than local government. Um, but yeah, it was, it was um, I, I'm done with that now. <laughs> yeah, don't get me wrong. Like I have a deep, unabiding fascination and like sort of like love for for politics, like from a almost a cultural level, like the mechanics of it, the people, the personalities is so fascinating. I just... I couldn't survive in it. I'm too much of a, I'm too much of an introvert. I'm too much of a hermit. Like well, I can't deal with people in that environment quite the I same. I think if I had been on the political side rather than the civil servant side, so as in I was staff rather than a politician, I think maybe it would have been okay. Like I might've been able to survive longer as a politician than I could um, as staff. But, you know, it was because I also still now have a deep seated fascination, like the philosophical side of it the you know social ramifications of it like and 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 one of the reasons that I don't talk about politics on this show is because I'm very political <laughs> and I have very strong opinions about everything and I would piss off a people so that is why I have a no and it's across all my socials as well like I do not campaign on any fucking topic ever about anything because I'm so strong opinion but um anyway this is not a political show so I'm going to move on from that very rapidly sorry <laughs> dragging oh, you okay. into that no no but we should have like a coffee and talk about it because I find it fascinating oh, we could we could entertain each other for hours I'm sure that would be fantastic as long as you send me a bagel in the post <laughs> Deal. Okay. Okay. So we are here to talk about series writing. So do you want to tell everyone, first of all, the basics? What are the types of series that you classify as a series? And maybe could you like give a, an example of a couple of examples so that we understand those like in practice as well? Mm -hmm. So sort of the caveat to all of this is that in sort of over the last couple of years, as I've been really digging into um how fictional series are written, like how they're structured, how they're built. Um, there are surprisingly not a lot of widely accepted terms to describe different types of series. And so the terms I use are are some that I get from other places that like are sort of the norm, but some of them are just the best term that I could come up with. So I always tell people like, it's possible that what I'm describing, you would use a different term for, and we're probably talking about the same thing. It's just the terminology of it is 
still a little up in the air sort of for the larger community. Um, but I generally uh, categorize series as one of four types. Um, there are sequential series, which are uh, sort of the series where it's it's really one big story told in multiple smaller, like full length installments. Um, that's, you know, your Lord of the Rings, your Hunger Games, um, sort of the classic idea of a trilogy. They're usually tend to be sequential. Um, and obviously it's not just like you wrote a giant book and then chopped it up into pieces and called it a series. Like there's still an art form to it, um, but that's an easy way to kind of conceptualize it. And then similar to that, there are episodic series, which follow the same principle in that it's one giant story, it's one overarching plot told across multiple books. But unlike, say, The Lord of the Rings, which is, you know, three very chunky books, uh, episodic is told in really small installments. So this is where, you know, Kindle Vela is sort of coming to force. Uh, Tapas is another space for that. Um, a lot of authors do this on Patreon, where they're publishing episodes of their series um, that are novella length or shorter. And that is its own sort of type of series and that it follows its own sort of pacing and rules. And it means you have a lot of space for side quests and subplots and to sort of diverge from the main plot, you know, do slice of life stuff and character studies um, that you might not necessarily have space for in a traditional like sequential series. Um, because each installment is so much shorter, readers tend to be more willing to stick with you through sort of into the like cul-de-sacs of your story and back. Um, again, there's an art to that, but uh, it, it's why I consider the two to be kind of meaningfully different. Um, and a great example of episodic series would be uh, the Dragon School series by Sarah Kale Wilson. Um, I think there's 20 entries in that series now. And they're each, yeah, just very short sort of novella length um, books. And then moving away from series that have that one sort of overarching story, um, you get into static series, which are uh, Jack Reacher, Nancy Drew, um, you know, Sherlock Holmes, very common in thrillers and mysteries, where each book is standalone. Like they're not connected by a larger plot. You can technically read them in any order but they're all linked by the same protagonist. So, you know, the Jack Reacher series, every book is Jack Reacher, you know, solving a crime or, you know, doing his vigilante thing in different places. Um, and so they have that sort of common setup and that common protagonist throughout each book. And then sort of the far other end of the spectrum from sequential series from like The Lord of the Rings would be uh, anthology series which are very, very common in romance where you don't have the same protagonist in each book. Um, you don't have the same plot in each book. They're very, very standalone, but they're connected by a larger sort of overarching concept, a big idea where, uh, for instance, like the Bridgerton series, I imagine a lot of people are familiar with right now because the Netflix show, um, each book is a different sibling of the family it's the same world. It's the same sort of culture and politics. There are some things that carry over from book to book, but they're really, you could read each book. You know, you could pick up the seventh book in that series and perfectly understand what's going on. Um, even if it is making references to past books, because it's very much a standalone story. It's just told in this, beneath this sort of larger setup of this common family in this common world. So that's what I write now is mm -hmm. but the, i call them interconnected standalones mm -hmm. but that like so but it's that 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 thing where like the characters cross over or there's yeah like you say there's some a trope is connecting the series or you know i don't know whatever but yeah they are my favorites because oh oh do you have do you know your strengths clifton strengths 
the strength. Um, Tammy Labreck spends great time trying to convince me uh, to remember my strengths off the top of my head, and I never do. Are and you she kidding has a, me? She has a folder on me. It's really funny. We'll be on a call, and she's like, wait one moment. And she'll go look, and she's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense with your strengths. I'm like, even I don't know my own strengths that well. Oh, but I think I'm like goodness. number one strategic or, or something, if I'm remembering correctly, which okay. kind of tracks. Okay, okay. So, like, you're going to have to send me an email because... I need to know what the others are. I can't, I can't, I can't <laughs> understand that you don't know them off my heart. Anyway, the reason I like internet anthology um, series that you're, you're interconnected standalones is because I have Activator and Activator gets bored real quick. So um, I, yeah, the, the, the authors who are able to create like 20 book series blow my mind because I'm like, how do you stick with the same people, the same characters for like that long? I just, it like, yeah, blows my mind. Okay. So in a series, well, we have protagonists and protagonists arcs will work differently in each of those four different types of series. So can you maybe talk a little bit about how to master like a, a protagonist character arc in those different series? So anthology series and static series are kind of the easiest for this because they are, um, I like the way you describe it as a, they're kind of inter interconnected standalones. Um, for an anthology series where you have different protagonists in each book, um, you really are just following all the same rules that you would for a standalone novel. Like you're not trying to stretch it across the whole series. Um, you know, you still want to, you still want to follow sort of the, the frameworks and best practices around making each book as strong as possible, like writing really strong character arcs uh, for each one, but you don't as much have to worry about how they link across the whole series. Um, for static series, because you have the same protagonist across the series, those protagonists don't usually have big sort of expansive character arcs. Um, they might change in small ways across the series, but they tend to be pretty consistent. Uh, hence the term static, like they are very static characters. Oftentimes that means that they have a flat arc where their character arc is more about how they're influencing other people to change versus how they themselves are changing. Um, but in some instances, they don't strictly have an arc in the same way that you might expect for a lot of novels. It's kind of a weird gray area. Um, and then sequential and episodic mostly follow the same uh, rules, and they're sort of the most complicated in that for those two style of series, because it's that big overarching plot, um, you need a character arc in each book. Like you need some sort of stepping stone for the character to go through but you also are sort of charting a larger character arc across the entire series. So um, again, to like pick on the Hunger Games, um, she has an arc in that first book. You know, she, she learns to trust other people, like to be willing to make herself vulnerable to other people because that's how you survive. But she's also, that's also building towards a much larger series wide character arc that really doesn't, um, that really doesn't, resolve itself until the end of that final book, which is a lot harder to sort of plan out and build out, but you get, you get a lot of rewards for doing that. Like it's a very powerful emotional moment if you can pull it off, which is why I think a lot of readers really like that type of series because you get like very intense uh, high points right at the end. I hate reading the last books in a series because mm -hmm. I am yet to find a series that ends satisfactorily to me. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know what it is. Like, I have always avoided reading series, always. And and I think it's because I get so, like, disappointed. Like, and it's not that the series end badly. They all have a great climax. They We all get that moment. But for whatever reason, I'm just never satisfied with the end of series. And I think that is what, another reason why I have gone to writing interconnected standalones because I don't have to to do that like I can do it in a different way it's also one of the reasons that I struggled with this so I'm just finishing the last book in a in in a series of three interconnected standalones and one of my questions to my beta reader is like have I rounded it off enough because each book is a different story but but actually you've got characters that span and I always think it's really important to give enough like a, yeah anyway 
that is not relevant. But um, uh, yeah, I, I just think for ending series is like the hardest job of an author because you spent so long building it. You have to really up the ante um, without killing the protagonist, um, Veronica Roth. <laughs> but let's <laughs> Like actually, that's probably where. Oh my god, it's trauma! Oh my god, like that. That is when I stopped reading the end of series. I literally. You were so burnt. You were so hurt. You were so burnt. Oh my god. Okay, now I know that. Maybe I can go back and read them live on the Rebel Organ Podcast. Sasha has an epiphany. Uh, Okay, (laughs) let me move some therapy tonight. Right. Okay, what are the biggest mistakes you see writers making um, when they're trying to approach writing a series? So actually, to kind of draw out what you just uh, mentioned, like you ended that series and felt incredibly burnt. um, There are sort of three things that stand out to me that I think authors do that sort of um, doom otherwise really interesting series with a lot of potential. The first one is not being clear on your big idea, like on that overarching concept. Um, Because no matter what type of series you're writing, you have some big idea that is linking all of those books. So maybe it is a common family. Maybe it is the same protagonist in the same sort of setup in each book. Or maybe it is that that sort of big grand plot. But you need to know that um, as an author, because that's what you're promising readers. And that's kind of the second point is Every book you write, when a reader picks it up, is making a promise to them of like, what is the experience they're about to get? What are the emotions they're about to feel? You know, you have to understand what what you're giving to readers. And so that you don't get to the end of your series and kill off your protagonist and all of your readers are like, that's not what you promised me. (laughs) Like that, you know, don't be wrong. There's something to be said for subverting expectations and sort of challenging your readers, you know, taking what they assume to be true and twisting it in interesting ways, but it's a balancing act. And like, you have to respect that the, the promise that you've made to them. Absolutely. I, so I had a really interesting conversation donkeys ago now with Gail Carragher. Um, and she was telling me that the reason that Veronica Roth had fucked up so royally is because she used a um, heroine's journey as the, the series arc. And you don't, the heroine's journey is about bringing together, not, not she ended basically with a hero's ending hero's journey ending rather than a heroine's journey ending and that's why readers felt so betrayed um by that series so yeah i think but but yes the promise is so important there's so many things that you have to get right before well I don't want to say before. For me, it's before. But if you're, you know, somebody who writes into into the dark, they're not necessarily before. You can do it after. But anyway, I. I'm planning a new trilogy. So what do you think are the main things I should plan in advance? What kind of concepts, information, subplots and character kind of things do I need in advance of starting this series? So I would say that overarching concept I mentioned, like getting really clear on that from the outset. And you mentioned, you know, people who write into the dark maybe aren't aren't plotters uh, in the same way that I think uh, we are. Um, even if you are a pantser, even if you are just sort of making it up as you go, you still need to know that overarching concept because that's your baseline. And so if you're sort of looking ahead to planning any length of series, not just trilogies, but any length, um, really drilling down into, you know, what is it that is connecting these books? Why is that connection there? Um, and is that, am I making that clear to my readers? Again, that promise, like as I'm starting book one, is it going to be clear to them what that overarching connection will be? And then once you sort of have that in place, then you can start to think about like, okay, well, how am I going to sort of stretch this story across the series? Because I'm a very firm believer that every story has a natural end point where even if you want to stretch it further, like it has run its course, it has reached its best conclusion. And there's something to be said for honoring that. You know, there's a lot of somewhat famous examples of series that got really popular and the creators just kept dragging it on and on and on. And by the the end, everyone was like, this should have ended years ago. <laughs> it just, you sucked all the life out of it to try to stretch it as much as you could. Um, and don't get me wrong, you know, I'm not gonna tell people 
who are making millions of dollars off of their series, how to do their job. You do you. However, I do think there's something to be said for, for considering that. And so for a trilogy, especially, um, trilogies are kind of fun because they have their own sort of rhythm and cadence, like trilogies follow a very consistent, um, flow. It's not, it's not even a structure in the way that like you might, you know, use the hero's journey or like the four act structure to like structural plot. It's very much just a, it's a flow between each book. And so if you're sitting down to write a trilogy, even if, even for those who aren't um, plotters, but especially for plotters, sitting down and starting to get a feel for like, how will your trilogy flow across the three books? Um, book one is usually sort of set up. You're introducing this smaller conflict. It's still important. It still has stakes, but you are sort of hiding the deeper side of it. And then the characters resolve that conflict. And in doing so, they sort of blow open the doors and realize how much deeper this goes. They get sucked into a world that they maybe didn't expect. Um, and then book two is where you can really just develop that and, and, you know, take what your readers thought was true in book one and just turn it on, on its head to show the deeper side of it. Um, and then set that up for book three, where you sort of pull all those threads together um, and really, really test your characters to kind of resolve what you set up. And so as you approach your series, taking some time to think about like, okay, how am I going to, how am I going to tell this story in that kind of flow across each book? Um, I think is wise to do before you start, regardless of what type of writer you are, just because it, it sets you up to have an easier time and to make it easier for you to satisfy readers so that you are, you are being cognizant of their expectations as they're reading and as you're writing. I love this. Let's let's go even deeper into kind of the series arc. I know it looks different in different genres, but talk to me, I guess, about the main beats or plots that we need to hit in a trilogy um, versus like how that would look across like a 10 book series, for example. Um, and like we can use my series if you want as an example, because I do know I haven't I like I haven't started outlining each book, but I'm I'm getting to that point. So um, it is a romance series and I want to do something slightly different. So one of the things that I learned from the Girl Game series is that interconnected standalones have serious potential for drop off of read through because the sequential series, you can end on a cliffhanger in the way that I didn't in the Girl Game series. So although I had quite good reader retention, it wasn't as good as some of my friends who I've seen who've had like insane like levels of read through because they have a cliffhanger. So my plan is to have standalone romances in each book, um, but to have, so the, the romance starts and finishes in book one, and then there's a different couple in book two, and then there's a different couple in book three. But I want the fantasy plot line to go across all three so that there will be like a plot cliffhanger at the end of book one, a plot cliffhanger at the end of book two, and then obviously we'll draw it to a close at the end of book three. Um, so yeah, I don't know like whether or not we can maybe talk about that and like what like what are the beats that you need to hit in those different points versus maybe what that would look like for somebody writing a much longer series. So yeah, trilogies are sort of again, kind of their own thing. And so for you, like looking ahead to a trilogy, um, I love I love the idea of like having that like underlying fantasy plot, even if it's kind of an anthology series, but it's almost a hybrid in that way. Um, I think that's really, I think that's really clever and really interesting. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I was like, I feel very smug about it. I won't lie. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, and yeah, and to sort of draw on slightly tangent to your actual question, but to sort of draw on what you talked about, but like read through and having cliffhangers, um, as an editor, I have a very complex relationship with cliffhangers because <laughs> I, and this, I'm not saying this to you by any means, but just sort of to the general writing sphere. I think like 80% of writers use them wrong. Um, cliffhangers at the end of a book can't, at least in, in my opinion, can't leave the question of that book unanswered. So for instance, if 
the core conflict of book one uh, is, you know, who is going to, like someone's trying to murder your protagonist. Let's say we're writing a mystery. Someone's trying to murder your protagonist. Book one is all about like figuring out who's after them. And uh, you end book one with, uh, you know, a shadowy figure kicks him out a window and then cut. Readers are going to feel very burnt by that. <laughs> They're going to be like, I just went through 80,000 words and you're not going to give me the ending. And now I've got to wait six months for the next book. Like they might pick up the next book, but I feel like it, you sort of betrayed them in that way. Versus... Which is exactly why I'm not, which is exactly why the the whole point, I mean, I write romance, that is. Mm-hmm. So the romance has to be complete in each book because that's the bit, that's the promise. The pro, You know, I wrote tro- I write tropey romance. So like if it's enemies to lovers, there has to be enemies and there have to be lovers at the end of the book, right? But that's why I'm trying to, like, like you say, it's a hybrid. And I, yeah, feel like a smug motherfucker. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to get away with it. Well, so what I like to do is to think of it more as like an open loop, like, okay, so, uh, you know, for for your um, story there, you know, the romance plot line is really central. So you resolve the romance plot line, but at the end of it, you open a loop of, well, what's going to happen next in the fantasy plot? Like you've resolved the central question of that first book, but in doing so, you've opened a bigger question that leads into the next book. And so I think that is in its own way kind of a cliffhanger. I use a different term just because I I think people think of cliffhangers like as like the hard stop. Like you trigger an explosion, but you don't let anyone hear the sound, like just a full stop in the middle. Um, and I think that, that that works in so few situations. <laughs> it's a very delicate balance. But thinking of like, you're going to resolve the main point of this book and then open this bigger question of yes but this now has implications for x y and z and is asking new questions that pulls readers in while still making them feel like they got the experience that they were looking for and now let's continue so i don't know that's sort of my like spicy anti-cliffhanger take (laughs) not necessarily to your question um but to your questions about um series sort of plot arcs um Trilogies are very much their own thing. And so in some way, I almost wouldn't compare them with other like lengths of series just because they have, they were the gold standard for such a long time um, in so many genres that they've sort of developed their own uh, cadence and expectations. But for other series, um, really the way you sort of pace it out is, it depends on the type of series. So for a static series, because they're all, or anthology, because they're much more standalone, um, you have a lot more flexibility in how you do that. But for anything with that sort of overarching plot, so in your instance with kind of a hybrid, you still have that larger plot. Um, And my goal always with that is to strike a balance. So I use the four act structure um, in most of my work uh, as both a writer and an editor. And so if you're dealing with the four act structure, if you're writing a 10 book series, you kind of have to pull back and like look at those books on a larger scale and say, okay, well, in terms of my series wide arc, where are my different crossroads falling? Like, you know, where is my first crossroad? Like, you know, where is sort of the midpoint of this larger series? And across 10 books, if you have all of those sort of squished together at the beginning, and then you have your finale of the series in the last book, that's going to feel very disjointed to readers. Like the pacing will feel very off versus if you were able to sort of spread those a little more evenly where like book one was sort of that first crossroad. And then you sort of had a midpoint around book four or five. And then you had that sort of dark night of the soul um, in like book seven or eight. And you sort of wrapped it all in book 10 um, you know, it's it's hard to give like a, these are the exact beats you need to hit in every book because it will depend slightly on the story. Um, but trying to strike that balance is sort of the, the general advice I would give most people is to like, think about the structure that you're using. You don't have to use the four act structure. That's just what I use. But then how can you, how can you pace that out across the whole series in a way that feels, um, feels balanced and feels natural for readers? Okay, let's talk about second books, because they have a bit of a notorious reputation for not being as good as book one and book three. So, of course, I'm still talking about a trilogy here. Um, But how can we keep book two 
Uh, or if we're doing later books in a series, let's say you have got a 10 book series, you know, books four, five, six, maybe even seven. Like, how do you keep things fresh? How do you keep readers engaged uh, in that series as they, as engaged as they are in book one? I would say to always raise the stakes in every subsequent book. Um, that doesn't necessarily have to be like grand raise, like you don't have to go absolutely, you know, crazy with it, but raising the stakes in some way and shifting the dynamic of the story. So in book one, you know, readers get used to the story as it is a certain way. Like these are the characters I'm dealing with. This is the conflict they're dealing with. This is sort of the system, the world within which they live. But then in book two, if you can come in and say, oh, well, these other characters are arriving on the scene that are changing sort of the balance of power. Uh, these mechanics that you thought, you know, if you have magic systems in your story, like the magic systems you thought worked a certain way actually have a deeper layer to them. Or there's this aspect that maybe the characters don't understand or that is new. Um, you know, how can you introduce new locations? How can you introduce new relationships or bring back relationships from backstory that you sort of touched on in book one? And now they've returned to sort of throw a wrench in things. Um, really, if you can figure out what readers took for granted in book one, or if you're doing a longer series, like what have they taken for granted up until now? And how can you challenge those assumptions? And, and quite literally like throw a wrench in things, both because it means your characters have more to struggle against, which makes that more dynamic and interesting. And it, because it keeps readers on your, on their toes, like anything can happen in this story. And that's really engaging. Have you watched How to Get Away with Murder? I haven't. Oh it's, my God. I know. I'm so that sorry. That series is like the perfect example of that, on of how to turn things on its head, because there are like so many twists in that series that I actually can't fathom how the writers wrote it. <laughs> because there's so many betrayals and double blinds and bluffs and double bluffs and triple bluffs and like twisting characters, backstories that, you know, and revealing things later that you had no bloody idea about that. It is, I honestly think it's an absolute masterpiece that Shonda Rhimes did. Like, don't get me wrong, it's super dramatic, but... um you know, like kind of her thing, you know, yeah, but in the in the way that Riverdale got a bit ridiculous, it got a bit ridiculous, but also like I'm here for that. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> I yeah. want to like give me that. Um, yeah, but that's a great example of of what you're saying there. If you haven't watched it, um, and you like Shonda Rhimes's work, because like I'm actually making a point of going through every single series Shonda's ever done, um, and. I mean, Scandal is always going to have the top spot for me, but this is a very close second, I have to say. And I love Grey Grey's Anatomy as well. So I don't, anyway, right. What do you do when you've written yourself into a corner? Perhaps you've already published a book and you can't undo what you've already done. Maybe you are halfway through a draft and you're stuck. Um, and maybe it's because you don't know about something later on in a series or something that you've done before and now you don't know how to get out of it. What do you do when you've written yourself into a corner in a series? I would start by taking stock of like where you're at. Um especially if you already have books published. Um, because again, you know, we've talked a lot about like, what are you promising your readers? Like, what are they expecting from you? And even if you're sitting there, like I've, you know, even if you're George R. R. Martin, you're like, I've written myself fully in a corner and this last book is never coming out. Um, yeah, right. You still have to, <laughs> oh, I, I cannot fathom how he wrote that series as a panther, as like as a full self-proclaimed no plan both a masterclass and a cautionary tale. Um, he is amazing and also terrifying. But do you know who else that... is a pantser who's slightly He's terrifying? A... Pierce fucking Brown. Oh. <laughs> did you know that? He, he I, is a pantser. Yeah. Like, how the hell did he do that as a pantser? I haven't even read the whole series, but I read uh, Red Rising and uh, I was just like, oh, come on. <laughs> come on. I, I'm such a plotter that, like, I can't. I can't Find fathom it. how people pants yeah. as well as they do. Like it's a, it's a dark art to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's wonderful. Like I, I covet the skill. I covet mm -hmm. it. Um, I mean, I don't know. 
when you say you're a plotter, how much plotting do you do before you start? Like, what does it look like to you? So, so I say I'm a plotter. Um, I actually would consider myself more of a puzzler, but that's not as much of a used term. So I usually just say plotter because it's easier. Um, I, my stories come to me in chunks. Um, so I will like have a absolutely vivid, like, you know, word by word concept of like five different scenes and no idea how they connect. <laughs> and so my process is to then take those and start to like puzzle them together and like, okay, well, how can I fill this gap? How can I fill this gap? And for me, that's basically writing, um, I call it a bullet draft, um, but it's basically a zero draft or like a really rough first draft um, where I just write the whole story in bullet points, like as I puzzle out where pieces go. Uh, and then I go in and I sort of turn it into a proper first draft, so to speak. Um, so I'm a pretty aggressive planner. Like I usually have a pretty solid idea of sort of what I'm doing and where the story is going. Do you have like like thousands of words in notes on like yeah, before you start? I, I will write like 30 to 40,000 word outlines uh, easy. For, for listeners, for my, my jaw just hit the floor. Okay, so <laughs> I don't think that I'm necessarily as much for a, a plotter as I thought I was. <laughs> I mean, just listen to that. So here's what I do. You see this here? Like, so for listeners, I have a whiteboard and it has post-its on it. I had a look the other day, funnily enough, back through the last four books I've written. I averaged 26 post-its and that's it. <laughs> I have 26 post-its and if it's not on there, I just start anyway. <laughs> so like, I feel a bit uncomfortable. They just 40,000. I mean, that's a, that's a whole... Oh, heap of words. Yeah. That's a whole book well, right there. I think the secret is, and this is always kind of funny to admit, I hate writing first drafts. It's like pulling teeth. I'm miserable from word uh... one till the end. My brand, I am, I am, I'm not just an editor as a job. Like I have an editor brain. I am so, um... I'm sure when you see my Clifton strengths, you'll be like, oh, that tracks. <laughs> but um, so for me, the planning is how I, is how I get myself through my first draft because I'm so, I get so caught up in like the perfectionism of it that if I didn't have a really beat by beat plan, I would, I would lose myself. You know, I would, I would let go of the story because I'd get overwhelmed. So for me, I write out, I'm, I write by scene, not by like word count. So if I have a goal, it's, I'm going to write five scenes this week versus I'm going to write 20,000 words. Yeah. Um, and so what I do is I actually have each scene on an index card and I like tape them up this giant wall. I look like a crazy person, like the guy with string, like, and then this happened. And then the postman, I'm like that. Um, I mean, you can see a crazy diagram on this one where I was trying to explain how a bit of magical tech worked to somebody the other yeah, day. Absolutely. <laughs> whiteboards are like the soul of writing for me, like having yeah. a good big old whiteboard. Uh-huh. Um, but so I have each scene on an, on, on an index card and I will write that scene for my first draft and then I will remove it from the wall. I will stick it in a box. I will take that scene, put it like save it as a file, put it on a USB drive and put the USB drive in a drawer. I call it black hole writing because if I go, if I leave it up, I will be so tempted to go back and obsess over it that I will never move forward. And so I... I take the story in chunks that way so that I can literally like, as I write, just mentally delete everything I've written so that I can keep moving forward without my like editor brain turning on. And then once it's all done, then I turn my editor brain on and I can, and I just have a blast, like making do, it all polished. Do you, do you write in order? I do. I don't plan in order. Um, again, but it's that like in order. puzzler aspect, but I write in order um, just again, because like, that I'm gonna, perfectionist brain. <laughs> I, I'm going to tell my friend about this because I have a friend who uh, can't help but go back and edit. Mm -hmm. And uh, then they end up cycling and yep. not getting to the end of the book. So I'm going to tell this person about that. And uh, I hope that it, it helps them. So I um, I have a similar issue in, in I have to avoid editor brain at all costs. Not because I have, uh, not because I have an editor brain. I really don't. I fucking hate editing. Um, I, I love, what I love is making prose pretty and I love helping other people. So like I enjoyed editing others more than I enjoyed editing myself. Um, 
but I have like the self-doubt cycle and the way I've gotten around that is to write really fucking fast. <laughs> Mm-hmm. If I I have to basically outrun my editor. If I write fast enough, then the editor can't keep up because the editing bit is slow. So yeah, like that's basically um, what I've done. But I find it very interesting because there are definitely elements of similarity in the puzzling bit. That's how I, I definitely puzzle out the book. Like there's things that come to me about like the series that we've been talking about. I have like concepts and bits of the world and bits of who the characters are, but not necessarily that like, so I know the three protagonists, but I don't know the love interests. And then, you know, so it's stuff like this, but um, yeah, I mean, I don't even know if I have a thousand words of outline. I mean, it's whatever can fit on 26 post-its on average, which like kind of blows my mind. So maybe I am more of a a panzer. I, I suppose what I do have is a very good concept of what the scenes need to be, like, but I don't necessarily know how they're gonna. Yeah, I must be somewhere in the middle then, I guess. I mean, it's all a spectrum. Like, uh, it's yeah. There's no like one way. Like, oh, you know, if you're a plotter, you have to have the thirty thousand word outline, or if you're a panzer, you have to have nothing. Um, there's no one way, but I will say my my outline is really the it's the draft, like. When I a say zero, it's like a, yeah, a, like a bullet draft or a zero draft. Yeah, skeleton draft is a great term for it. Um, it's what I'll do during the the that stage. So I have my sort of index card stage where I'm like puzzling through like where the different pieces will go. And then when I still have a bunch of holes, but I sort of exhausted everything I can think of, I'll sit down and I will write the novel in emails to myself. Again, anything so that I can just hit send and it disappears and I can start over. Um, cause it, that's how I outrun my, my like perfectionism. Um, and so I'll just in, in like bullet points, I'll just like type out on my tiny little phone keyboard because it, it prevents me from being precious about it. Like sentence by sentence, like, well, and then this will happen. And then this person will do this. And then, but this is a problem because of this. And then this is the backstory. And then this happens. And I just kind of go and then I get stuck. And so I'm like, okay. And I hit send and I start over and I keep going forward until I've mostly mapped the whole thing out. That's where my outlines get long is because I'm basically writing the story, but that gives me enough to work with when I sit down to write the actual first draft that I can't obsess over it enough to talk myself out of writing it, which has happened for many a story. (laughs) Oh, I love this. I love the idea of I'm going to torture my friend and tell them that they should write stories in emails to me rather than sending it to themselves, because then I will save it into a, oh, I'm going to, this is a real kidney punch, this one. But, (laughs) you know, when you have friends like this, it's it's great to be this friend. I am that friend. No, uh, yeah, you know, because then, then there's no temptation to go back, right? Right? Like, because you haven't even got access to it. <laughs> I feel so evil. <laughs> it really works. So much like, it works. I, I say that it works. Um, I have a student recently who's I've been talking with. They've been struggling with a lot of writer's block. And it, it has kind of a root in overthinking. You know, they get to the same part of the story every time. And then they start to, their brain starts to overthink themselves. And they just start to circle back and forth. Uh, and they lose steam. And... I suggested like, well, try, I mean, black hole writing is what I call it. Like literally write when you're done with a writing session, put it on a USB drive and like, give it to your wife, you know, give it to a friend. Like you can't access it, toss it in a black hole. But for her, that almost makes it worse because now she's like, well, what did I say in that scene? And like, did I, am I totally messing it up? So it doesn't work for everybody. Like you have to really be able to compartmentalize but it's always worth a shot. Like if that's something someone's struggling with, you never know what'll what'll click with your brain. Absolutely, so. absolutely. Okay, talk to me about series <laughs> Bibles. So we, we've talked about series Bibles before on the show. So I was keen to kind of like ask you a question that sort of talked a little bit around them. So I guess my question is like, one, give us a basic definition of it, but two, what like are the key things that we need to put into a series Bible and like, what is the kind of stuff that writers are like reluctant to put in, but probably should because they'll save themselves later down the line. Like there's always that thing that you forget that you've said, and then you spend, you know, five hours trawling the manuscript for it. So yeah. Like what, what do we need to put in that, that we're not putting in that trips us up? So sort of as a, just a basic definition of a series Bible for anyone who might be new to that as a term, um, it's similar to an outline, uh, but it's sort of on a much higher level. Like it's much more broad in general. 
um, a series Bible is kind of just a document where you save the like key details of your series so that as you're writing, you're not having to flip back through. Like you're on book 10 and you're like, well, wait, what did I establish in book one that I can't remember anymore? It kind of saves you a lot of that work. So character names, locations, you know, basic world building mechanics, like what is your overarching concept? Do you know the the plot sort of main plot beat of each book? Um, that kind of stuff. But the thing that I see people resist the most for series Bibles is actually a style guide. Oh, um, God. <laughs> I know. And I say that as someone who also, I resist it for my own writing, but my proofreader actually, bless her, finally was like, you have to do this. <laughs> um, because you know, do you spell that character's name with a U or an O? Like, is that location uh, capitalized or not? Like that kind of stuff, you would be surprised how much comes up again as you're in later books and you're like, do I hyphenate their double last name or do I not? <laughs> and then you get on an hour long tangent, like searching through past books, you find five places where you did it differently. Now you're going back to try to fix those or the book's already published and you're freaking out. Like it's such a little thing just as you go to make notes of that stuff. Um, but it makes your life easier. And it means your proofreader doesn't charge you as much money because she doesn't have to build a, a style guide for you. And, uh, and that's great for everyone involved. <laughs> No, absolutely. I love that. And um, actually, I didn't do that in my first series, but I did do it in this most recent one. Um, and you've reminded me that I need to start doing it for the next one as I'm already starting to come up with like magical concepts and things. Okay, well, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. And for anyone listening, I'm sure you can tell I'm not a particularly rebellious person. <laughs> I'm a very like structured kind of guy. But um, a couple years back, before you know, before the COVID times, uh, my boyfriend and I bought a sailboat with the intention of living on it full time. Oh um, wow! Yeah, she was a absolute dumpster fire. <laughs> <laughs> Um, she was in really bad condition when we got her. We, and we, we had every intention of fixing her up. We were going to spend a year, spend all of our free weekends and time, um, getting her fixed. You know, I, we became electricians, we did plumbing, uh, we climbed masts, we did hull repairs, we did everything. Um, she needed a lot. And then COVID hit and we couldn't really leave because we'd be relying on shore service services, which are closed because of COVID. So we waited a little bit longer and we fixed some more things. Um, and then COVID finally got to a point where it was, we felt safe to sort of go enough stuff was open that we had the services that we would need to sort of function. And we uh, sold all of our stuff. We gave up our apartment. Um, we were both still working. So we, we were working remote. I obviously was working for myself. His company was like, yeah, we don't mind you working remote. Um, his boss actually also used to be a sailor. So he was very on board, which was very convenient. And we moved on board uh, and we got settled in. We stayed at our home Marina for about two weeks, actually while a storm rolled through um, like the worst storm that the area had had in years. Uh, there was like a foot of water over our dock. So we were just fully like playing ping pong with the other boats that was a stressful first night. That was literally our first night on board. Oh my God. That was a lot. Um, a precursor of things to come. And then we finally left once the storm had passed and it cleared up. And the first thing that happened, we got to the middle of the Chesapeake Bay and our boat broke down. <laughs> our engine no. fully killed itself. We ended up stranded on a very remote island in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay for um, four or five days and when I say remote, like they have 120 full-time residents. Oh um, there is no government on the island. They are run by the Methodist church because it's the only uh, structure there. It is a truly fascinating place. They flood like a couple, couple times uh, a year. And so everyone's just like used to shoveling water out of their houses it is a wild place, truly like a fever dream. It was, we met some amazing and very strange people, both in equal measure. <laughs> um, but they was in the middle of a, 
uh, of gnat season. Now, as you might imagine, this island is basically just a swamp with a couple solid pieces of ground that people built houses on. Um, so when I say gnat season, I mean like black clouds of gnats <laughs> at all times. And we're on this boat with no running water. Our fridge is broken down. Literally everything broke in that first trip. It was really bad. Um, we're covered in engine oil and grease, uh, 100% deep bug spray, bug bites. <laughs> we are sweaty. We're dis- It was... I have never felt so physically disgusting in my life. (laughs) Um, And yet it was also like an amazing experience. Like we, we genuinely met some really awesome, fascinating people. It was like a fever dream. Um, But yeah, that was, that was my moment of rebellion is we, we moved onto this boat. Everyone in our life told us it was a terrible idea that we would regret it. We don't regret it. Uh, (laughs) But it was a a terrible idea. (laughs) But it was a terrible idea. Um, And yeah, so we finally got her fixed. Meanwhile, there's no cell service on this island. Like it is fully remote. So I couldn't check in with any clients. My boyfriend couldn't get in touch with his boss to tell him what happened. Um, We finally got it fixed and left. The next place we got to, it broke down again. No. It broke down like five times before we finally were just like, we can't. We can't afford to keep fixing it uh, and getting stranded in strange places. So we came home and had given up our apartment and everything. So we proceeded to sort of like hop between friends' houses while we tried to get our life in order. Um, It was an interesting 18 months of life. Uh, We finally are sort of settled in our own space again. But I, we don't regret it for a second. It no, was a well, wild, wild time. Well, welcome home. And I'm glad you finally got somewhere that's not going to flood, hopefully. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. Tell everyone where they can find out more about you, your books, your services, anything else you'd like to add. Um. Well, sort of the, the impetus, the spark that uh, sort of got us together for this podcast um, was that I have a book coming out, um, Beyond Book One, about how to uh, plan, write, and publish fictional series. So if anyone uh, really enjoyed this chat and kind of wants to dig deeper, I think that book could be a great starting place. Um, It's been a a labor of love for quite a few years. It's nice to have it out in the world. But in terms of where to just find me more generally, um, the best place is my website, thenovelsmithy.com. It's got links to, you know, hopping on my newsletter if you want to stay in touch. Um, checking out my books, my other books, um, basically everything I have going on lives there. So that'd probably be the best place if people were interested. Amazing. And I'll make sure all of those links are in the show notes as well. Well, thank you very much for your time. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You were listening to Lewis Jawstad, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Week, I'm joined by Melissa Torres, and we are talking all about writing and selling middle grade fiction. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.